0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Beyond Right. It is so wonderful to see you here on this fine Tuesday evening. I'm gonna mute everybody, just to have a nice, clean background. You can feel free to unmute at any time and jump in, questions, comments. All right, they tell a story. We begin with a story, always a story. They tell a story about two accounting partners. They were partners in the accounting firm, Himmelman and Nussbaum. Himmelman and Nuss, maybe Nussbaum, Nussbaum. All right. So anyway, they're meeting at the bank with the bank manager. You know, when you're an accountant, that makes sense. So once in a while, you got to meet with the bank and the bank manager. Suddenly, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, they couldn't see this coming. masked robbers. I mean, now everyone's arrested. Anyway, mass robbers burst into the bank and they pull out their guns. And they rob the tellers and they tell everybody in the bank, do not move. Everybody against the wall, start emptying your pockets. Himmelman and Nussbaum are standing next to each other. Himmelman quietly reaches into his pocket, pulls out something and places it into Nussbaum's hand and closes it. Nussbaum turns to Himmelman and says quietly, what is that? Says it's the fifty dollars I owe you. All right, my friends, my friend, you got it. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you, Jared. So yeah, we're good. Makes sense. Oh, let's get uh, let's get Mindy in. All right, friends, we have a phenomenal class tonight. Absolutely phenomenal. B. I'm gonna call it BCE. This is gonna be best class ever. This is BCE status. All right. Hey, Mindy, welcome. So we are going to once again this evening look at a core Jewish value and then kind of trace how it's manifest and how it presents itself in the arena of Jewish law. The journey is going to be wild. Today's core value, as you probably saw from the email, today's core value is freedom. Now we live in what is ostensibly a free country. How do I know this? I've heard the national anthem. I've heard it. It ends... Hold on. Now, I literally started to quote it in my head. The land of the free the and... Land of the free. land of the free and the home of the braves. I mean, the home of the brave, right? Isn't that how it goes? At least in, uh, in the ATL, that's how it goes, right? Land of the free. We are... We live in a free country. We live in us, in what is ostensibly a free country. And yet... And yet, here's the caveat, ever since our country's founding, there has been, and even till today, there are still elements in practice that may not truly ring as being fully free. Today, we are going to look at such things as institutionalized slavery, debt bondage, debtors' prisons, and modern prison labor, and modern employment law, and ask, A very simple question with not a simple answer. Just how free are we really? As we'll see, Judaism has a radically different answer to a lot of the questions we're going to ask today. Judaism's vision of humanity is so radical. Judaism's vision of not only humanity, but human freedom is so ahead of its time that it's literally taken thousands of years for even the most civilized of societies to catch up to the Torah vision of what freedom looks like. And I'll tell you, even after thousands of years of playing catch up, 3,334 years to be precise, societies have not fully caught up even yet. And along the way of tonight's class, we're going to gain a deeper understanding of the role Jewish life plays in the quest for personal freedom. We're also going to learn what you and I can do to enhance and advance human liberty. We have a lot to talk about, so much to cover, so much application, let's begin. We're going to begin with a case study that will floor you. I hope you're sitting down. I mean, it floored me, I hope it floors you as well. The story that I'm about to tell you takes place, true story, takes place in the, in the mid 1800s. And it centers, around the topic of slavery. You see, at that time in the mid-1800s, the United States was divided. Divided between North and South. At that time, slavery was permitted in the South, and it was abolished in the North. Which makes this story that I'm about to tell you so very compelling. You see, there was a couple from Tennessee Their name, the the name of the couple, the name of the uh, husband and wife, Lewis and Laura Sweet. What a sweet couple they were. Tennessee, they came from Tennessee. Tennessee was one of those states in the South where slavery was still legal. And the Sweets had a slave whose name was Betty. Henceforth, this conversation will be known as Betty's case, as it's become known in legal circles. The Sweets from Tennessee had a, had a slave named Betty. In the fall of 1857, the Sweets decided to take a road trip. I'm pretty sure at that point, everything was a road trip. Right, wasn't it? I, I'm pretty sure. And anyway, they decided to take a road trip. North, together with Betty. They headed up to Canada. They, headed, they toured around some of the northern uh, United States. And eventually they found themselves in Massachusetts. They came to one Lawrence, Massachusetts. That's a name, not that's a place, not a name. They came to Lawrence, Massachusetts, and there that's where the drama that I'm about to tell you unfolded. You see, the locals in Lawrence, many locals were appalled at Betty's plight. They met the sweets, they met Betty, and they said, You have a slave? You're in the North. We don't have slavery here. In fact, the law was in the north all slaves go free. And they appealed to the Swedes. The Swedes would hear nothing of it. They demanded that she be freed. They demanded freedom for Betty, to no avail. One woman, Lucy Schuler, brought it as a legal matter to the court. She demanded that the court declare and enforce Betty's freedom. There was one problem, there was one small problem. There was one woman who opposed the freedom of Betty. You know who it was? It was Betty, it was Betty, who was not hearing any of this. Let's look, gonna look inside right now, let's look and see what happened Next. Give me one second here. Hold on. Okay. Pulling this up on my end. Let's get the party started. Hold on. Give me a quick moment. Okay. I'm going to read this text. This is text one on your books. This is page 104 on your screen. It is up in three, two, one. Betty's case. Text one. You notice above the text it looks like CBS logo? I think I mentioned that before. Yeah, a little CBS-I. I don't know why that is. Betty's case. Habeas corpus. Okay, this is uh, from the Monthly Law Reporter. November 9th, 1857. Yeah, this is going back a little while. Habeas corpus upon petition of Lucy S. Schuler of Lawrence, setting forth that a colored woman named Betty was restrained of her liberty at said Lawrence by Sullivan Sweet and his wife. Sullivan Sweet? Yeah, well, they got that wrong. His name wasn't Sullivan. All right. Either way, his name was Lewis. After the writ had been read... The counsel for the respondents, that would be the suite stated that they belonged in Tennessee and had been traveling with their servant Betty in Canada and several of the of the northern states, and for the last six weeks had been at Lawrence, that Betty had, during all this time, been aware that she was entitled to her liberty and had been under no restraint, and that her client at the sorry, that his clients were willing to abide by her choice. The sweet said we'll do whatever Betty wants. Whereupon I, the judge, judge. Lemuel Shaw, whereupon I proposed and had an examination of the said Betty, apart from the said Sweden wife and all other persons, that would be a private conversation, upon which it appeared to me that she is 25 years old, intelligent and capable of judging for herself, that she has a husband in Tennessee and other relatives, that she is much attached to Mr. and Mrs. Sweet, is very well treated by them and desires to remain and return with them. And this desire... She expressly deci- she expressed decisively and upon repeated inquiries. I explained to her her right to freedom and protection here and that she could not lawfully be taken away against her will. Now, it was contrary to all the principles of freedom that this or any other person should not exercise a free choice in such a matter. Betty was entirely at liberty to exercise her free choice and no one could interfere with her without incurring a personal liability. Whereupon it was ordered and adjudged that the said Betty be at free liberty to remain with Mr. and Mrs. Sweet or go elsewhere at her free choice, and that all persons be interdicted and forbidden to interfere with her personal liberty in this respect. In short, cutting through all the very beautiful legal language, essentially the judge said the following. Betty is so free, she can even choose to be a slave. That's how free she is. Yes, she's in Massachusetts. And yes, in Massachusetts, everyone is free. And she is so free, she can choose, she can decide free will. She can choose to remain a slave to the sweets. So I want to ask you a question. That was the ruling of the judge. Here's my question to you. I turn it over to you now. Feel free to unmute. What do you think? How do you feel about this ruling? Do you think that Betty should be free to choose to be a slave? Or do you think that the value of freedom should force her to relinquish slavery? What do you think? Jump in.
1: Free to choose.
0: Okay, one vote for free to choose.
1: Free to choose because for you to force her to be quote free even if she stayed in massachusetts she's now away from support she's now away from family uh from my reading of the history books they weren't so egalitarian among the races in massachusetts although african americans were not slaves and she would be condemned to poverty whereas based on what's written she had what she felt was a halfway decent life and wanted to keep it that way
0: That's all very good points. By the way, I don't I don't mean to interject in any uh, you know hot hot button conversation, but it's claimed even till this day. Sports teams in Massachusetts, you go to uh, a Red Sox game or whatever. There's uh, there's been there's been claims of uh, of not so nice comments being um, being uh, uh, directed at uh, at certain races. Just saying. Um, It's kind of of like reminds me of the democracy, you know, the movement to create democracies where you free people and then they choose a dictator. It's like, oh, oh, look at that. Huh. I thought that you y'all were free. Yeah. (laughs) So free. We went back to dictatorship. Look at that. Look at that happen. Yeah. It's like you have a notion of what freedom is and then you try to impose it. And then the question, well, is that free? So so far, I'm getting some votes on the free to choose, even to be a slave side. Anyone want to argue the even if you don't really fully like buy into it? Anybody want to put forth the other side of the argument, or maybe you do believe that one?
2: Why is she labeled a slave?
0: Why is she um, why is she labeled a slave? That's a good question. You're saying who comes up with that label? I don't know. I don't know. You know I guess at a,
2: at a stretch, it could be argued that she is employed. Oh. She, she's very she's very happy in her right. situation.
0: Right. Travel benefits
2: likely during the year she receives some sort of reward or remuneration from the family in exchange for her her work with the family.
0: Right. So maybe it's not a bad arrangement. Right. Maybe it's just like a some live in uh, help, you know, around the house with the or family. Indentured servitude. servitude. <laughs> yeah. OK. I'll
3: make an argument. Rabbi for, for the other side. Yeah, David, jump in. And that is, is, is this really a free choice for her? She has family in Tennessee. There will be repercussions. Maybe she was born into slavery. She right. really has no vision of any other life. And and it's probably terrifying for her. That the idea that she's going to be uh, um, out from under the, the only life she's ever known, you know, without some sort of support system. What if you came to her and said we can provide a job, we'll move to to get your family brought up here. You know, now what's your choice? Interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll get you a house, we'll yeah. make sure you don't starve. I like this. Someone 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 comes in and says, you know, we're gonna provide these things that are obviously terrifying you and you're in in and you really don't have a, a choice here because of its impact on the family and, and, and your, yourself.
0: You're saying absent considering all of her potential fears and considerations, are you really even giving her a choice or are you stacking the deck against the her possibility to even choose some other life that she doesn't know about and is afraid of? Excellent. That's a, that's a great counter argument. Good. Good, good, good. Um, any other... Yeah, Mindy, jump in. Perhaps um,
4: for for... The argument to like not impose or force something on her, but what could be possibly imposed or forced on her is that before when she was a slave and worked for the family, she probably didn't get any any.
0: Ooh, we, pay. Om- we almost heard and that pay okay.
4: This family, paid. What?
0: No, you you trailed off. The connection is not great by you. Sounds like, okay. but I think you. St- it's okay. I think you said the word pay, right? She didn't get pay?
4: Yeah. I, think I said that as a slave, she, she worked for the family with no pay, I'm sure. And this and as a free woman, she could decide to continue to work for the family, but get paid. And that could be imposed or forced on her. Like, as a free woman, you are not only entitled, but are you will be. You know, it's their obligation to pay you now. And could right. Something that's like forced or imposed. I don't like the word forced or imposed, but she could have the freedom to choose to stay with the family. But this time, because she's a free woman, she will get paid for her service. Right.
0: So you're saying, and so I I would put it in a bit of a different terms. If you ask Betty, if the judge would ask Betty, hey, so I understand that your your family's there. That's the life that you know, etc. I'll give you two options. Either. Keep your current arrangement or get paid a fair wage, like somebody who's not a slave, a non slave wage, whatever that would look like, whatever, you know, arrangement that typically was. Imagine you get paid like a regular wage. What would you rather? Would she not rather choose that? Then maybe the, you're asking the, a bit of a different question. It is interesting. I think you and David are, are pointing out something that, that I believe is, is very important that is, how you ask a question will elicit, perhaps in many cases, a different response. Right? How you ask the question. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about on that. But I, I, So what it comes down to is this. And, and these are all good points, and we're going to get some Jewish perspective on this issue as we go through today's class. But I just want to summarize it like this. And this is by no means the totality of the conversation, but just two points that I'll mention. And that is, what we have in this situation is a pretty fascinating paradox. And the paradox is, you know, should our fierce commitment to, to, to freedom open the door paradoxically to slavery? If we're really open-minded, if we're really free, we're really granting a person their personal freedom, are we then opening the door to slavery if a person so chooses? Or should we compel people to act contrary to their wishes under the guise of freedom? That's the, re- that's the crazy paradox, right? Should you be so open to allow slavery by choice, Or should you actually limit the rights to create a space of freedom? Openness might lead to something closed, and closing something might lead to something open. That's the weird, that's the complicated paradox. Now, one way of framing this question from a philosophical perspective would be to better understand the very notion of freedom, or to use another term, liberty. Philosophically, there are two models of freedom and or liberty. There's what the philosophers call negative liberty and what they call positive liberty. What's the difference between negative liberty and positive liberty? So negative liberty is what we might term freedom from. Negative liberty means that the focus of liberty or what constitutes the liberty is in what is not there. Not what is there, but what's not there. What's not there being shackles, fetters, tethers, any type of ball and chain that otherwise would hold, hold someone down. So typically we're talking about external factors. So the absence of such external factors that lock someone in or keep someone down, what constitute liberty. That's negative liberty. Negative liberty means that the liberty is defined by what's not present, and in the case of of human freedom, it's not not having the presence of, uh, of, of coercion. So when coercion is removed, that creates the space of liberty, but in that negative liberty sense, freedom from. Freedom from restraint. Positive liberty is very different. It's not freedom from, it's freedom to. The question is not what type of limitations do you not have, but it's what possibilities do you have? Do you have the ability? Do you have the possibility? Do you have the platform to pursue your dreams, to pursue your purpose? If you do, then you have true positive liberty. Does that make sense, the, the positive, negative and positive liberty? Okay. We've talked about it in previous classes a, a long time ago, I think. I don't know, a long time ago. Whatever. Some years ago, we talked about this duality in a different context. But I'm going to put this up on the screen. You have it in your books. Take a look at the next text. Okay? Two theories of freedom. Dr. Maxi, if you can please read text number two, I'd be grateful.
1: Negative liberty is the absence of obstacles, barriers, or constraints. One has negative liberty to the extent that actions are available to one in this negative sense. Positive liberty is the possibility of acting or the fact of acting in such a way as to take control of one's life and realize one's fundamental purposes. The idea of distinguishing between a negative and a positive sense of the term liberty goes back at least to Kant and was examined and defended in depth by Isaiah Berlin in the 1950s and 60s.
0: Thank you. So this gives a pretty decent, very short summary of negative liberty versus positive liberty. Negative liberty is what is not there, the absence of obstacles. Positive liberty is the possibility of acting to take control of one's life and realize one's fundamental purpose. So, negative is not having the restraints, positive is having the ability to do what one is supposed to do or what, what is what 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 one is meant to do. All right, so those are the two forces. So, if if we use these philosophical terms, it might help us address Betty's case. Because again, we have here a couple, the Sweets. They're in Massachusetts. There's a whole movement now to free Betty. The judge calls in Betty for a meeting, and Betty says, I'm, I'm actually fine. And the judge rules that based on the notion of freedom and liberty, she should be able to choose whatever she wants, including to be a slave. Does that, that ruling really fit into the notion of negative liberty or positive liberty? Or both? What do you think?
1: See, I think it's both. I mean... Uh, otherwise, you have to assume that in that phrase of possibility of acting or the fact of acting means that all of those constraints are somehow magically gone and therefore you have the possibility of taking control of your life um, and to you know achieve your higher purpose. But if you got the black jack boot on the back of your neck, it's really hard. To self-actualize, which is to me what this seems to be talking about.
0: Right. So so on the one hand, good, excellent. So on the one hand, we would we might say the following. We might, we, we might argue the following. You, there's a counter-argument, but one could say this. That when it comes to negative liberty, again, negative liberty is that no one is telling you what to choose. The judge calls her in and says, We're having a private meeting. Here are the two options, here are the options on the table. You choose freely. In that space, her choice could be, could be determined, could be considered to be free. Free choice. Why? Because she has two choices in front of her, and no one is compelling, again, again, notwithstanding the arguments that we had before about other factors, which I think are very real. But if if we just think of this maybe a little bit more simplistically, um, th- no one is compelling her in this moment to choose one or the other. She is unfettered. She is unshackled, as it were, in this decision. And thus, she is free to make the decision. She has negative liberty. But her choice of being a slave, does that allow for her self-actualization? So one might argue that in the scenario of Betty, the ruling is framed along the lines of negative liberty, i.e. not wanting to impose, not wanting to coerce her choice, so we give her freedom of choice, but her choice itself Although, on one hand, on the one hand, free and, and be speaking of liberty, on the other hand, does not bespeak the notion of positive liberty, which is the notion of self-actualization, actualizing one's purpose. Because to be a slave, again, based on this argument, would not fit into that paradigm of positive freedom, a positive liberty. Positive liberty means that one is positioned to do what they are meant to do. How does slavery fit into that paradigm? So one could say that when the judge asks her, you know, do you want to be free or do you want to remain a slave? Giving her that choice is an act of negative liberty. In other words, it's it's ensuring that she is not being compelled to make her choice. But her choice itself runs contrary to the notion of positive liberty, which is the act of stepping into one's purpose, stepping into one's life choosing slavery is not is not consistent with that would go the argument although like i said before i, I alluded to this in passing it's not necessarily definitive because one could make the argument and say well, wait a second who are we to tell betty what her purpose in life is what if one miss betty decides that her purpose in life is to be of service to the sweets what if she decides that is my fulfillment and my purpose in life is to serve this family, and that's what gives me nachas. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what I get excited about. That's what gives me, grants me, a sense of fulfillment. That is my purpose. That is my, that is my why and wherefore of being. Let's say she puts forth that argument. Who again? Who are we to tell her not? To tell her you can't choose, well, that would be an affront to her negative liberty because that would be kind of binding, twisting her arm to make a decision, which means external pressure. I, the fact that she's choosing slavery means that she's not stepping into her positive freedom. Again, the counter-argument, yes, goes one argument, but the counter-argument is, who are we to tell someone what their positive liberty is and what that means for them? Could, can't a person choose what their positive liberty is and what that means to them? Richard, jump in.
2: Yeah. So, so the, the Swedes—they they already knew this. Um, they know Betty better than anybody else. They, they knew, or they uh, certainly they knew what the laws were up in Canada and what the laws were up in the north. <laughs> and um, they would have to have known that Betty, being in the north, could opt for her freedom. Right. N- knowing Betty. And knowing that she had ties to the area and knowing that her life wasn't so miserable <clears throat> they bet that uh, she wasn't going to leave she wasn't going to go anywhere because she had too much to lose she gets into massachusetts when these people are appalled that she's a slave in their midst Slavery's slavery is not legal here she should have the choice to have her freedom the 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 swedes they go sure Give her the choice. We're, we're all for it. Whatever she decides, right um, we're, we're gonna go for it. but uh, to, to my mind, that was pretty disingenuous because um, they knew what, what she was going to opt for. Uh, life is pretty tough, I think as, as, as Joy mentioned earlier, that um, you know she, she would she would have it rough. She would have to depend on people's charity uh, uh, to, to fulfill her destiny. Uh, She may never fulfill her destiny. And how does she get reunited with her family who can't get out? Right. This was this was a
0: I. Yeah, I I would without knowing the ins and outs of the case, other than what you know, what a little research that I did. I tend to uh, agree with you that they were not surprised that this came up and they were not at all surprised by her choice when confronted with the option. They, I would bet, if I were a betting man, I would bet that they knew exactly what you said. They knew who she was. They knew what she would choose. They didn't didn't blink. You want to take us to court? Take us to court. You want to ask her? Go ask her. Knock yourself out. Ask her. See what she says. It doesn't seem like they were surprised. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. So I would go back
1: to David's earlier points when he made the counter argument. So... Another way in which I would reframe this is, again, back to Richard's comments as well. So if you knew she magically could have an education, could have her family with her, could actually have a job to pay a living wage, and we'll just stop there and keep going. But if we knew she had all of those things, then to your point, point, if she said, no, I feel my highest purpose is to help the sweet. Okay, that's a whole different story but none of those factors are either implied and based on what most of us know historically, we would not presume them to be the case.
0: Right, yeah, great point, great point. But you stack the deck against someone and then say, so, what do you choose? Is there really a choice, is there really a choice? And I think that maybe, maybe, you know, we can, uh, we can think of this not in the specific terms, but as a, as a general template, as a general question. You know, if somebody chooses to relinquish their freedom, is that a choice that a person should be able to choose? Or should we say, no, you don't have the right to relinquish your freedom? Now, one could say, again, I'm saying now in general terms, stripping it from the specific case from, uh, from the 1800s, from the 1850s, if we think about this in, in kind of like larger terms, or more general terms, should a person be free to choose to relinquish their freedom? If you say yes, that's the ultimate freedom, but it comes at a cost of freedom. If you say no, then it's not granting freedom, but it is granting freedom. It's that's why I call it a paradox—a little bit mind, a little mind-twisting. But
2: how, so, how do you parse this? How do you parse this from, from the reverse? What if what if somebody uh, li- like um, uh, 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 Betty is 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 a slave? She's in the North. Um, um, should she have a right to be free? Period. For example, there there is a there is a um, there's a story about um, a slave named uh, I think it's Ona Judge. She was she was George Washington's slave. Uh, traveled with him uh, from. Uh, George and Martha's, the very favorite slave, traveled with them to Philadelphia uh, when, when Philadelphia was the first capital. And she stayed there, I think, for two years. And after tasting freedom, she did not want to go back. Mm. Um, and, and she ran. She ran and he pursued her for the rest of his life. George Washington. Interesting. Because she was his property. Didn't she have a right to be free, especially if she already in Philadelphia, there, there were free blacks already living there?
0: Yeah, I would say I would say that's a to, to me, that's a no brainer. Yes. To me, the interesting I, to me, the interesting question is if a person wants to opt into a relinquishing of their freedom. And thus, the question is, are they that free that they can even be free to give up their own freedom? That's but kind they,
2: of. But, but, but they should be. I mean, even. even I hear you. I hear in our, you. In, 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 in our history, our forefathers opted for indentured servitude for for a period of a great period of time and even re-upped. They had the freedom to, to continue that that drudgery yeah. until finally they, they, they earned their freedom back.
0: I hear you. Okay. So it's the question is on the table and from a from a philosophical perspective it's do you put negative freedom possibly ahead of positive freedom or positive freedom ahead of negative freedom negative freedom would be the choice at all costs you can make a choice whatever that is positive freedom is well one second what is the nature of the choice does it bespeak one's higher purpose does it does it allow one to achieve what they achieve the counter to that counter argument would be well wait a second or maybe the counter argument would be well hold on uh, who's to tell a person what their purpose is? Maybe this person's purpose is uh, is not exactly what you think it should be. All right. So what I want to do now is look at what Judaism has to say about freedom. We gave a, we brought a case study, we discussed it, we explored it, we gave some philosophical language to it. But let's really get into what Judaism has to say about freedom, and it's it's a little bit I don't know if it's surprising, but it's a little bit interesting. Um, I am going to share my screen once again. Oh, look at that. The uh, Liberty Bell. Um, Let's get into text number three from Pirke Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. All right, Sarah, if you don't mind, please read text number three.
4: No person is free except for those who occupy themselves with Torah.
0: And that's, I would call that a mic drop from our sages. They're like, you ain't free. Unless you're dealing with Torah, boom. That's it. They're in, they're out. A one-liner for the ages. It's like, what? Torah? Are you... Is this the same book that I'm reading? Are you? No one's free unless they occupy themselves with Torah. And by the way, that doesn't just, that doesn't just mean Torah study. It means Torah and mitzvot. 613 do's and don'ts. What you can do, what you should do, what you must do, what you can't do. You kidding me? Governing every area of life, and you are telling me that's free? That's fr- no one's free except one who's all in on Torah. What? You got to be kidding me, right? And and like, wh- how does that? What does that even mean? So, according to Judaism, and by the way, I would say Judaism knows a thing or two about freedom. I mean, think about our origin story, right? Hello, <laughs> Exodus, freedom. Like we're into this whole freedom thing. We've thought about it for for a long time few thousand years already. Um, we have like, holidays dedicated to the, to the Exodus. Shema, multiple times a day, we talk about the Exodus. So there's a, a few things to say about freedom in Judaism. Judaism, as we saw in Pirkei Avod, Ethics of our Fathers, does not pull any punches. According to Judaism, freedom and Torah are inextricably joined. They are intertwined. They are interconnected. In fact, as we just saw, There's even the negative. I'm going to pull this back up on the screen. Take a look. It says, no person is free except for those who occupy themselves with Torah. No person is free. That's the opening statement. You cannot be free except if you occupy yourself with Torah. Now, the link between freedom and Torah, or freedom and Judaism, or freedom and spirituality, or freedom and God. I'm going to use all these terms a little bit... um, interchangeably tonight so that link is found in um in the in the torah itself take a look at a very i'm sorry i'm sorry before we get to text four before we get to text four this link is found in torah in the book of the exodus uh, in the book of exodus what is what does it say in exodus moses went to pharaoh so what was his famous line Hey, Pharaoh, how's it going? No, his, fa- his famous line was, "Let my he was quoting God, let my people go. My people is not Moses' people, it's God's people. Let my people go. But everyone forgets the end of the sentence. Everyone remembers the first half of the sentence. But what about the second half? Let my people go so that they may serve me. That's what God's message that Moses relates to Pharaoh is. Let my people go so that they may serve me. Hold on. I was enjoying the first half. What happened with that second half? Freedom, let my people go, is the is, is the ultimate call for freedom or demand of freedom. So that they may serve me? What? Servitude? Hold on. Time out. I thought we were getting away from servitude. Let my people go so that they may serve me? What's going on here? So here we encounter here we encounter something magical. And it's what we said in text number 3, no one's free except for one who engages in Torah, who engages in higher divine commitment. Moses comes to Pharaoh. And he says to Pharaoh the following. Pharaoh, you represent lower service. What do I mean? You represent just distraction getting involved in somebody else's wishes and whims pharaoh says moses we don't have time for you and your pyramid schemes we don't we don't it's like you got this whole thing you know it's all we're gonna who has time for it who has time for your mlms it's like really, really. it's like pharaoh let it go buddy right, let it go let us go. Why? Not so that we're just aimless and rootless wanderers and nomads, a nation without a home, just wandering the desert, looking for directions without asking. It's not what's going on. That wasn't the end game. The end game was something of meaning, something of value. The Exodus was always step one. (coughs) The Exodus from Egypt was always just step one. Step one, it's like Mo in the war room in Moses. Step one, get out of Egypt. Step two, get the Torah. That was always the plan. It was always the plan. And you know why? Because lachab Ben Chorin Elamisha osik Torah. Because you can't be free unless you have a purpose. And in this case, in this case, in the Jewish understanding, we're talking about higher purpose, higher living. Living Toward a higher truth. Pharaoh represents lower living. Pharaoh wants you to build a building. He's got this going on. He's got a country to run. He's got all this really, to Pharaoh, all this really important stuff. And Moses says, essentially, to Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh, buddy, I love you. We have no time for this. We have no time for this. We have a more important job. He doesn't take Pharaoh to the international court. He doesn't accuse him of humanitarian violations. He says simply, Pharaoh buddy, we gotta go. We have an appointment with God. I, I gotta go, I gotta run. I Really important, I I gotta run. Oh, you got something really important for me to build. I don't have time, I gotta run. I have a rendezvous with God at Sinai. See you later, alligator. That's what he says to him. He says, I have, we, we. have have an appointment with God. And that's gonna take a little bit of precedence over all y'all's schemes. How's that for the South? Right? Probably a little clunky, but I tried. This is is the way that Moses communicates freedom to Pharaoh. It's not like, how dare you uh, uh, subjugate? How dare you enslave a people? that is worthy of outrage that wasn't moses tactic he didn't say he didn't pull the outrage card he said pharaoh we gotta go we got an appointment with god that's our purpose higher purpose is this true for the jewish people yes is it true for everybody yes everybody has a higher purpose whether it's 613 mitzvot, whether it's seven which are not just seven The seven laws for all all humanity are not just seven. Each of them has many subcategories. So many dozens of rules and regulations. Whether a person has the 613 or the seven general categories, uh, the reason why I'm saying this is because it came up in the chat. Either way, every human being is here to live for a higher purpose. See, we live in a society that is so focused on consumerism, so focused on the lower stuff, so focused on the here and now, on on existence, as opposed to higher living, that it's almost like, what are we even talking about? But this is the Jewish perspective from the beginning. Moses never intended for the Exodus to be the totality of freedom. That's not freedom. Exodus? Good. It's a good step one. Matan Torah? Sinai, which we're about to celebrate this Saturday night, Shavuot, right, the holiday. What happened seven weeks later? That's the real deal. That's the clincher of freedom. That's what constitutes freedom. You can take somebody out of prison. You can take the slave out of slavery. But now what? Now what do they do? Imagine, two million strong. Now what? Just wandering and hating on the Egyptians? Being stuck in resentment, stuck in hate, now what? That's profoundly unhealthy. That's not freedom. God gave us the ultimate gift of freedom seven weeks after the Exodus, and that is called the Torah. The Torah gives us a blueprint for higher living. It gives us the template for what it means to live a purposeful life, and that is freedom. So the Mishnah says in Avot, in Ethics of Our Fathers, it says there is no free person, You cannot be free. That's step one. You are not free. Human beings are not free. They cannot be free. Why? Because they're human. And humans will get stuck in themselves. Unless you embrace Torah. Unless you embrace, and again, Torah for the Jew, or anything higher for everyone, and or the Torah's values. The point is to embrace something higher than oneself. If you do not embrace something higher than self, I don't know. I don't know. It's easy to get stuck. I mean, it's easy to get stuck anyway, any, uh, either way, but it's easy, much easier to get stuck if you don't have something higher. This explains a quite unusual verse that I will read right now. I'm hoping this is making sense. Text four from Leviticus. God says, The children of Israel belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am your God. Richard, it sounds like George Washington, right? They're mine. I'm gonna chase them. They're my servants. They're my servants that I took out of Egypt. What does that mean? Look at look at the Talmud. Text five. Unbelievable. Quotes that verse: the children of Israel belong to me as servants. And the Talmud says, With this verse, God is saying, They are my servants and not servants to other servants. This is dropping the bomb. God says, They're my servants and they're not intended to be servants to other servants, which means that God is saying, I do not wish for human beings to serve other human beings because that's not why I created all y'all. That's not, ooh, twice. That's not why I created you. That's not why you're here. You're not here to serve each other. That's a profound waste of time. That's, God is the creator. He can say whatever he wants. God is saying, it's not why I put you here. I didn't put you here to follow each other. You ever see ants follow each other, right? One on top of the other that you could put them in a circle. They would net. You know this, right? There's an experiment. I think it's ants. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else, some other creature. They walk. Maybe not ants, but some creature, crawly creature walks so tightly to each other, front to back, right? One after the other that they can't even see in front of the other one. And if you, if you arrange it in such a way where they're in a circle, they will go in a circle forever until they just drop from exhaustion. What's my point? God says, don't be that creature that follows and, and subjugates themselves to other creatures. You have a higher destiny. Human beings have a higher purpose. Let me give you an example. Or let me give you an illustration. This is uh, what I'm about to share with you. is taken from a letter that the Rebbe wrote many years ago, and it's one of the most eye-opening perspectives. I'm, I'm going to do my best to paraphrase. There's four kingdoms of life as described in Jewish thought. The inanimate or mineral life, vegetation, plants, trees, grass, etc. Animal life and human life. And each type of living creature or each type of kingdom of life has different parameters whereby it is defined and different parameters whereby that thing experiences freedom. So what constitutes freedom for a rock? What does a a rock need to be free? Well, it just needs to be. It just needs to not be crushed. It needs to have its own integrity and just be able to sit there like rocks will do. What about a tree? What does a tree need to be free? Tree needs the ability to grow. Tree needs the ability to remain connected to the earth, enjoy sunshine and, 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 and water and, and oxygen and, or it gives whatever. It, it needs that and it needs the ability to grow. If you cut down that tree and you knock it over, And you put it next to a rock the rock is free the tree is not free you with me what about an animal what does an animal need an animal needs space to grow but it also needs space to roam trees don't roam if they do got to check that out you got to have that checked out okay trees are not moving around i know there's a talmudic story about a tree that jumped but that's Okay. That's another, that's, that's another class. So trees don't move if the tree doesn't move, that doesn't inhibit its freedom. But if an animal can't move, if you shackle an animal, then you're ham, hampering, hampering. Yeah. You're taking away its freedom. You with me so far? Everything has a different constitution of freedom. What about human beings? Give a human being space. Okay? Ability to grow. Great. Ability to roam. Great. Are we free yet? Nope. I mean, if we were animals, we'd be free, but we're human beings, which means we have intelligence and we have a spiritual soul. Uh Aha. That means is that for a human to be free, human has to have the ability to access and express his or her intelligence and spirituality. The absence of which means... You might be like an animal, but you're not free. Human freedom is defined in very specific terms for a human. I hope what I'm saying makes sense. Freedom means different things to different forms of being. For a rock to be free, it just needs to be there. For a tree to be free, it needs to be able to grow. For an animal to be free, it needs to be able to grow and roam. And for a human being to be free, human being needs the ability to grow and to roam and to think and to live higher than oneself. And that last piece is critical. Because so long as we are just following the other, so long as we are just head down, enslaving ourselves to the man, or whatever it is, whatever that is, we are not really free. And so God says, you are my servants. I do not want you to be servants to anyone else. Because if you serve a human being, then you're really a servant. If you serve me, then you're really free. That's... That's the meaning of, the, of these verses. God says, The children of Israel are my servants. I took them out of Egypt. The Talmud says, I took them out of human servitude to serve me. No, we didn't swap out one master for the other. We swapped out human servitude for human freedom, or maybe we would call it divine freedom. Because to serve God is not to be enslaved. It's to be liberated from the shackles that otherwise would define us had we been serving other human beings. And so in the final analysis, and I'm not saying that to conclude the class by any means, the final analysis of these verses, what we're suggesting, at least from a Jewish philosophical perspective, from a Jewish spiritual perspective, is that human freedom cannot be attained without... Some sort of connection, some sort of notion or aspiration towards something higher, something more spiritual, something more divine. It's a radical take. Anything short of that is imprisonment. Here's how the Rebbe puts it. Take a look at text 6. Service of God is not something that stifles the identity of a Jew God forbid. On the contrary, divine service is the very core of every Jew's being. This is the meaning of the sages teaching that no person is free except for those who occupy themselves with Torah. Even though Torah observance is termed service, it's still free. Observing Torah mitzvot is the true nature of a Jew. As the Mishnah teaches, I was created to serve my creator. Only when serving God is a Jew truly free. It's like we would say the same thing about a tree, only when able to grow it when, when having the ability to grow is a tree truly free? only when <coughs> only when the animal can roam is it free. only when the human being, the Jew, accesses something higher, intellectual pursuits, spiritual pursuits, divine pursuits, godly pursuits. only then is that person free, That is the statement that we're making, which means the following. We can think of freedom in terms of degrees or in terms of absolute either or. We can think of it in terms of free. Well, how free are you? Are you 50% free, 75% free, 100% free? Or we can think of it in absolute terms. If you're not 100% free, then you're not free. And within, within a more absolutist type of analysis, we would come away with the following. As long as the human being is not connected to something higher, as long as the human being is not directing themselves toward a higher purpose, a higher mission in life, higher spiritual, divine, godly Torah values, then we would say, perhaps, that the person is not really free. Going back to Miss Betty, in Betty's case, this is not a judgment of her or a true analysis of that case, but just using that as a way to converse about this. For a human being like Betty or anyone else to choose slavery and I understand there can mean many different things to many different people including Betty, including us but for a human being to choose to dedicate their life to another human being in an absolute way I'm not saying that she did I'm not saying that's what she meant but theoretically for a human being to do so would be engaging in the ultimate act of servitude, it would possibly mean not investing in higher connection, not investing in a higher purpose, which would mean that the human being is not touching true human freedom. In which case, Judaism would come down on the side of saying that although somebody might theoretically exercise free choice in choosing to be a slave, but that's not really free. It might be free choice, but it's not freedom, because freedom, as defined in Judaism, is the ability and the exercise of a higher purpose. Absent of that higher purpose, you have free choice without the freedom. So then what do you really have? You have the free choice of slavery, which is not such an attractive choice at all. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? From a Jewish perspective? So in short, if I were to summarize this, it would be the following. Judaism's take on the entire conversation about freedom and choice and negative liberty, positive liberty, is simply this. That freedom is not just about the ability to choose. Freedom is the ability to serve something greater than oneself. And if a person is not allowing themselves that opportunity, then their freedom is compromised. So is Betty free? Again, it's not really, I'm not judging her. But is somebody who chooses, that chooses servitude of a human being. 24 seven servitude of a human being, theoretically. Somebody chooses that, are they free? They made a a choice freely, but is that exercising real freedom? Not necessarily. Let me show you one more text on this. Text seven, Rabbi Rabbi of Lublin says the following. Great Hasidic master. Slavery is an unnatural state. The natural order of the universe is that animals are under the dominion of humans, but it is against the natural order for a human to be a slave to another human. I mean, he had passed away in, the 1900, in 1900, 1823 to 1900. This is perfectly reflective of a Jewish perspective. Humans ought not serve other humans. It's what Moses told Pharaoh. But not simply from a human rights perspective but from a divine a divine aspiration perspective or, I don't know, human rights perspective, but true human freedom cannot consist or cannot exist in a state of enslavement to another human being. It's just, it's just inconsistent. So Moses, so just to summarize, Moses tells, Pharaoh, Moses tells Pharaoh, we gotta go. Not because you're such a bad guy, although maybe, although for sure, but because we have... A higher freedom to exercise. God tells us, you are not to be slaves to other human beings because you are my slaves. My slaves? Slaves to God? That sounds terrible. Actually, for human beings, it's liberating. It's liberating. It means opening up a whole new channel of awareness, a whole new avenue, arena of opportunity. Higher connection, connected to something greater than oneself. That's not slavery. That's not slavery. That's freedom. Tell you a story, a very quick story. There was once a um, a very wealthy fellow who commissioned a yacht. Maybe he had a yacht, and he commissioned the captain um, to captain his yacht. And he asked the captain, "What is the secret? What is the secret to sailing?" And the captain said, if you want to experience the freedom of the high seas, you have to be a slave to the compass. Is it really a slave to the compass? I don't know if it's a slave to the compass. That's the phrase that he used. But it means when you when you're connected to a bigger picture, then you can really enjoy freedom. On many different levels, this is true. By the way, the slavery that's discussed in Torah, I just saw, I see snippets that come up in the chats without delving into it. The slavery that's discussed in Torah is more like indentured servitude, which is a completely different paradigm of than serving another human being. In fact, the slave goes free after, either way, if the, the Talmud says if somebody acquires a slave, they've acquired a master for themselves, number one. That's the degree to which you have to treat, how, how well you have to treat that person that's working for you, number one. Number two, the slave, the so-called slave, goes free after six years in the seventh year. Um, if they don't want to, if they want to stay, Allah, similar to to Betty, um, in the fiftieth year, they they are without question forced to go free. So there are there are a lot of stipulations. The slavery is not the same slavery. But in truth, as Maimani says, not in truth. Sorry, let me back that up. Another way to look at, as as Maimani says in his in his uh, guide uh, to the, for the perplexed, that this was a way of God weaning us off of slavery with all these restrictions. God was basically saying that. It's not a good thing. You still have to see, the world is still operating by this paradigm. OK, but here, here are the, the limitations, the very tight limitations on this entire, on this entire um, uh, area in life. And thus, ultimately, let's get rid of it. That's the message. But either way, either way, what's clear from a, a Torah value perspective is that humans serving humans, not a thing. Humans serving humans is not a thing. Humans being free for a high, for a higher service, now we're talking. Hebrew national um, an, answering to a higher authority, now we're in the game. Now we're in the ballpark. Now we're yeah. Now now we're in it, right? Serving other human beings, come on, come. On. Who has the time for that? Who has the time for that? We're human beings. We don't just need to grow and to roam. We need to really exercise something higher. Okay, now. Let's jump into. So, what we see now is the value of human freedom in Judaism. That's the value. And, and, and it's taken many thousands of years for the world to catch up. Literally. Literally, it's been taken thousands of years for the world to catch up on this very essential Jewish notion of freedom. Like that message that Moses told Pharaoh 3,334 years plus ago. Let lot people go so they may serve me. Humans should not serve humans. Leviticus, those messages, we're still learning. We, human societies are still figuring it out. Freedom and equality is still being figured out in 2022. Shockingly, 5782 in the Jewish count. That's the value. These are Jewish values. How does it translate in Jewish law? We're going to look at a few areas of Jewish law that are phenomenal. So for the rest of this class, for the next 25 minutes or so, we're going to go through a few different areas of Jewish law. Sorry, a few different areas of the law and see how Jewish law weighs in very uniquely. And it's all driven by the unique Jewish take on human freedom. In other words, if you consider Judaism's fierce commitment to human freedom, it would make sense to anticipate some very strong reflections of this and expressions of this in Jewish law. And if that's what you're thinking, then you are absolutely correct. So from here on out, we focus on the applications of these values or this value in Jewish law. And we see just how driven halacha Jewish law is to uphold this convention of human and personal freedom. We begin our legal rendezvous. With a case study that will assess our thoughts on personal financial liberty. Case study A. Let me pull this up on the screen. Let's take a look see together. All right, here we go. This is a case, a real case, that came before the Rush. That was that's what he's known as the Rush or the Rosh. Rabbi Usher ben Yechiel. These are pseudonyms. Ruvain. Borrowed money from Shimon and failed to repay the loan. Now, Reuven is now living with a relative where he eats good food and dons expensive clothing. His wife is similarly expensively attired and even provides gift to gifts to her friends. Reuven claims that all of this is provided by his relative, whereas he personally is penniless. He sits idle and refuses to engage in any labor or business of any type uh, of the type he always performed in the past because he knows that any money he earns will necessarily go toward repaying his loan. How do you feel about this one? Here's a guy, here's Ruvain. He borrows money from Shimon. He says, I can't pay, I have no assets, I can't pay it back. Can't pay it back. He's living like a king, or at least he's living well. He's got food, he's got clothes, his wife has he's living normal. And when asked, what about the money? He's like, it's not my money. I'm being supported. I'm, I'm not, I'm allowed to say yes to offers of help from relatives, but I don't have any money. I don't have any assets. I can't pay back the loan. Meanwhile, Shimon, the creditor, the lender, he's being stiffed, okay? Yeah, he's not getting paid. You be the judge. If you were the judge, what would you say, yeah? Mom, what was? Yeah.
1: I was yeah? support
0: say it again you cut out
1: a lot of people do this not to pay child support
0: okay well but let's it let's comes, let's stick let's stick to this case let's stick to this case for a second So and they, th-
1: make them, and they make them go back to work
0: okay but let's so 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 let's let's ask every so fine so you're saying that we should force them to go to work perhaps maybe
5: Perhaps.
0: Perhaps. Okay. What else? Let's let's get let's get some input. What do you guys think? Ruben owes money to Shimon. He's not working. He's not earning money. He's saying he doesn't have any money. What do we do? What do we do? Yeah, Steve.
5: Uh, he, he's certainly not Ruben's Certainly not a mensch. That's uh, he, yeah. That doesn't have to be stated, but it just doesn't seem to me like you'd be able to force him to go to work. Okay. And if he did, he'd keep a job for for a week, ten days, two weeks, and. Uh, wouldn't show up. Something got uh, it. Just uh, one of these people.
0: You're not going to do... help
5: them to begin with, and it makes me think of advice my father gave me, and I've lived by it all these years. Never lend anybody money. When a friend or somebody needs money, you give them the amount that you can comfortably afford that can help them. If they ask for ten thousand and you can only give them five thousand. Give them five thousand. Nobody should ever owe you money. And I and
0: I. Decent, Decent advice. Decent yeah. advice. Good, good. Um, okay. So the options on the table, historically, you know what is what? What has what have societies done historically? So societies have come up with various mechanisms for dealing with people that have that owe money and can't pay. And uh, the options have ranged from debt bondage which means forcing the debtor to work and pay off the debt, debtors' prisons, throwing the debtor in jail and prison, to, shall we say, more pressing measures employed by the mob and other (laughs) type of organizations, right? How do you get money out of someone who won't pay? We have our ways, right? I mean, and historically, societies and groups have utilized various pressure points to try to extract the guilt. However, what does Judaism have to say about debt recovery? I'm glad you asked. Take a look at Maimonides. Take a look at Rambam. Here we go. Text number eight. Oh, we're skipping that text. We'll come back to it. Text eight, debt recovery. Look at Rambam. Scripture establishes that when, that when creditors demand payments of debts and the debtors owe ass, own assets, the debtor's existential needs must first be provided for, following which the remainder of the debtor's assets are granted to the creditors. Okay? In other words, let's stop here for, for a second. Let's pause. If the debtor owes the creditor money, right? borrower owes the lender money, so the first thing you do, you're allowed to... Um, you're allowed to seize the assets. You seize the debtor's assets after you provide for their ex- existential needs. So you make sure they have their basic needs and then you take everything else and you give it to the creditor. Now, if, if the debtors own no assets, uh-huh, or if their assets are only sufficient to provide for their existential needs, in other words, there's no, nothing extra, then listen to this, nothing can be done to the debtors and they may not be imprisoned That's halacha, Jewish law says. You cannot do anything, you cannot imprison them. You know why? We know why. The first two thirds of today's class was why. The first hour of this class was why. Because you cannot enslave another human being. You cannot force them to work. You cannot throw them in debtors prison. Are you with me on this? What are the options? What are the options? You seize their assets if they have assets. Okay, you're allowed to take stuff. You're allowed to seize and freeze accounts. Sure. But can you force them to work? Can you force them into labor? Not in Judaism. You can't force them into into debt bondage. You can't force them to work to pay off the debt. You can't force work. Can you uh, throw them in jail? Debtors' prisons? No. You can't. So you can't render someone a slave or a servant for financial purposes. It doesn't, it doesn't fly. That doesn't work in halacha. Now, one second. Lest you think that Allah Jewish law says, no problem, borrow money, don't pay it back. Jewish law says, you have to pay back the loan. Jewish law says, you have to pay what you owe. Jewish law says, you have to work. But Jewish law can't force you to work. You have to work based on the right thing to do, or the spiritual obligation, or the Jewish obligation, but based on halacha. And I know I'm, I'm using words almost interchangeably, but there's there's two different two different levels to this. So the debtor has to repay the loan. That's their obligation. But are we allowed? Are we empowered to force another human being to work? No, can't do that. You can't force. You can say they. You can say you have to. That's what you, you have to. You can do the finger wag. I'm doing a pretty decent finger. I don't usually finger wag, but that's actually feeling pretty pretty good off the finger right there. You have to work. You have to pay back. You have to have. You can say that till you're blue in the face. But what can you actually do? Can you actually force them to work? You cannot. Can you throw them in jail? If no, not in Judaism. Judaism cannot do that. Why? Because there's an overarching value of human freedom you cannot force someone into slavery into servitude into forced labor you just you just can't you can't that's exactly how the rush Roche, the rush um uh, ruled in case study a take a look at his answer text number nine shimon's request that reuben work in order to repay his debt is not something that the court can compel the court cannot extend its jurisdiction over reuben's actual person by compelling them to perform work in order to repay his debt. That last line, that's pretty telling. You cannot force someone to work. You can tell them they have to, finger wag, but you can't actually force them into work. There's no mechanism to force them to work. All right, I hope this makes sense. And and again, this is how Jewish law is built on Jewish values. The Jewish value is you can't, enslave in prison you can't force someone you just can't you can't force someone into something even if they owe money even if they owe money you cannot force them to work you cannot force them into a prison cell you just can't it's not not kosher now what about what about um the united states does the United States force people to work to repay loans? The answer is no. The answer is no. Forced labor is not a thing. Slavery is not a thing in the United States. It took a while. It, took a, it wasn't right away. It wasn't instant. It took a little while. It took a civil war or so, or two, or no. One, it took a it took a war, a lot of casualties, but ultimately um, even the United States abolished slavery, and that's a very good thing. And yet, and yet And here's something that I I hope will open your mind to a very troubling truth that we all seem to, I'm including myself, typically not care about. And that is there are some dark vestiges of the past forced slave labor lurking in our society. There are some spaces in which forced labor is somehow inexplicably excused. What I'm referring to is forced prison labor. As the law stands right now in 2022, an inmate incarcerated in a U.S. prison can be forced to work against their will. If they refuse, they are subject to extreme measures such as solitary confinement and the like. What about compensation for this, for this labor? Nah, not necessary. And even if there is some compensation, it is ridiculously little. How is this legal? How is this not slavery? Well, you see, United States law, U.S. law would say, wow, we're talking about people who are in prison for crimes that they committed. Their rights are different in our country. Let's take a look at an article from The Atlantic from 2015. Prison labor. Once cleared by the prison doctor, inmates can be forced to work under threat of punishment as severe as solitary confinement. Legally, this labor may be totally uncompensated. More, tip- more typically, inmates are paid meagerly as little as two cents per hour for their full-time work in the fields, manufacturing warehouses, or kitchens. How is this legal? Didn't the 13th Amendment abolish all forms of slavery and involuntary servitude in this country? Not quite. In the shining promise of freedom that was the 13th Amendment, a sharp exception was carved out. Section 1 of the Amendment provides neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. Oh, look at this except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdictions. In other words, you cannot force someone to work, oh, except if someone's been convicted of a crime. Simply put, incarcerated persons have no constitutional rights in this arena. They can be forced to work as punishment for their crimes. Even in 2022, there is an area in our society that we all take for granted that we all consider it to be normal human beings being forced to work against the world but you say they're incarcerated they committed a crime shouldn't they be forced to do whatever we tell them maybe I hear that argument but I'll tell you who does not hear that argument Judaism that's not a thing in Judaism Ju- Jewish law does not agree with that Jewish law completely rejects that a human being needs to be free a human being, even someone who, convict, who who's convicted of committing a crime, does not lose their volition regarding work. It's not a thing. Slave labor is not a thing in Judaism. What I'm trying to say is this. I'm not, ra- not, I'm not necessarily putting out a petition after this class asking you to sign it to abolish this type of forced prison labor. Although, maybe. What I am suggesting is that Judaism, 3,334 years later, as I said at the beginning of this class, is still ahead of its time. We are still not caught up to Judaism's fierce embrace of human freedom. I'll say that one more time. The United States of America, what many consider to be one of the most free countries in the world, is still not fully caught up with ancient Torah and Jewish values regarding human freedom. You can disagree from today to tomorrow. I, I, I totally respect that. You might say, someone convicted of a crime, we can do whatever we want with that person. I hear that. But Judaism does not. And the United States, although having embraced Torah's understanding of human liberty and human freedom, has not fully embraced it with that sharp exception, as was pointed on The Atlantic in the 13th Amendment. Now let's move on, I know there are some questions that are coming up, but let's make a, a beeline for the next 10 minutes to the end, we'll wrap it. If you have questions, put them in the chat or write them down for yourself. When the class is over, when we've wrapped, let's bring them out and have discussions. Okay, so another go-to punishment, historically, in many societies, for centuries, has been the debtor's prison. As I mentioned earlier, the debtor's prison was a place where people who owed money and couldn't pay it were thrown in jail, thrown in prison to languish, maybe even to die there. And what was the rationale? The rationale was, well, if they want to get out, they have to pay up. They or their family or their friends or the community. They have to raise funds. If not, that's it. No is no mercy. Um, this practice was abolished. Debtor's prison was abolished in many countries in the 1800s. In Greece, as recently as 2008, that's when they abolished debtor's prisons in Greece 2008 it's not just a musical it's a place where debtor's prisons were a thing until uh, 14 years ago yeah shockingly so these prisons historically were very very bad in England we have many depictions of such prisons in fact in 1824 a Londoner by the name of John Dickens was thrown into one of these debtors prisons it had a very dramatic effect on his son his son, whose name was Charles, who you might know as Charles Dickens, who wrote about debtors' prisons extensively in his novels, one of the most famous novelists ever to have penned novels. Charles Dickens wrote about his father's experiences in the Marshalsea prison in London. Eventually he helped abolish, effectively abolish debtors' prisons in England in eighteen. 18- 69. But what does Jewish law say about? What does Jewish law say about debtors' prison? So here's a real case. <clears throat> Take a look at this. Here's a real case. Uh, text number 12. This came before the Revash, 1326 to 1408. You lived several hundred years ago. Inquiry. This uh, took place in Aragon, which now is uh, part of Spain. Reuven, Ruben, again, it's the fictional names. It's not like a bunch of Reuvenes borrow money. Like never, you know, if you meet a Reuven, run. It's just the fictional names, like John Doe. Reuven borrowed money from Shimon. In the contract, Reuven put up his personal freedom as collateral. Reuven <laughs> offered his own personal freedom as collateral to repay the loan. For so is the law in Aragon. If a debtor does not own available assets from which his debt can be repaid, he is incarcerated. Now Shimon, the creditor, Shimon the creditor now demands the repayment of his loan, but Ruben has no assets from which to pay. Shimon requests that Reuven be imprisoned as he explicitly agreed to in advance. Hey, you agreed to it. Now Reuven argues that he cannot be imprisoned for his debt because there is no precedent in Jewish law for a person to be imprisoned due to a debt. And you requested my opinion on the law in such a case. This is the revash writing and his responses. Jewish law sides with Reuven, the debtor. A person cannot consent to be incarcerated. Reuven said, I promise I allow myself to be incarcerated if I can't pay my debt. And Jewish law says, whatevs. Doesn't matter. We're still not going to incarcerate you. You can't. It's not a thing. Why the Torah states, you know this by now, that children of Israel belong to me as servants, from which we derive that they cannot be made servants to other servants. That was the Talmud from about 30-40 minutes ago. No contract clause can allow for a person to be compelled to work, not even in his regular vocation. It goes without saying that no clause can allow for a person to be incarcerated and made to languish in a dark dungeon. It's just not a thing. Judaism says, Jewish law says you cannot force a human being to work. You cannot force a human being into a debtor's prison. It just even though they promised, they, they signed the contract that said, if I can't pay back, you can put me in debtor's prison. doesn't matter. Imagine somebody puts on a contract. If I can't repay you, then you can turn me into a frog. Still doesn't, doesn't mean anything. That doesn't have any legal validity. You, you don't have, Jewish law says you made a promise that you can't deliver. You can't deliver yourself into into, in, into, um, into 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 uh, imprisonment it, it doesn't work. Jewish law would say it doesn't matter what Reuven said. You can't imprison him. What we've seen here is that Judaism's fierce adherence to human freedom drives us. Drives Jewish law. The value of human freedom drives Jewish law against any form of debtors' uh, bondage or prison. For not repaying a loan. Now let's talk about employment contracts. Let us uh, let me share my screen. Let's go back. So that so we're, we're going to make a quick pivot, and this will be the last piece of today's class. The quick pivot is to employment law. I mentioned this at the beginning, and it was just mentioned by the Rivash regarding employment contracts. He just mentioned it in passing. Now we're going to pivot. So what we've done is we've talked about the value of human freedom. We've talked about how Jewish law upholds human freedom even in the face of debt, unpaid debt. Now we're gonna talk about, what about employment issues? Employer, employee. Essentially the question is, if a person has pledged to do a job, can they quit? What do you think? Do you think that Jewish law would allow them to quit? Yes? What's the alternative? You can't quit. You have to work. Not in Jewish law. Take a look. Take a look at your screen or in your book. We're gonna go all the way back to case study B. Take a look at this. This is a real case that came before the New Hampshire Superior Court in the 1800s. Mr. Britton signed a contract to work for Mr. Turner for one year, for which he would be paid 120 in total Equaling $10 per month. Okay, so Britain is working for Turner for 12 months at the rate of $10 per month, $120. But Britain ceased working after nine months, and Turner was only able to find the replacement worker for the remaining three months for $45, equaling $15 per month. Turner did not pay Britain anything for his uncompleted contract yet, and Britain sued to collect pay for the work he performed. So, they have a contract, $10 a month for 12 months. After nine months, the worker, the employee, breaks the contract. So now the question is, oh, and the, and the guy, Turner, has to hire guys at 15 a month for the last three months. So now the question is like this. Does Turner owe Britain any money? So, three options. Take, take a look back at the screen or in your book. The three options are, option one is zero. Britain is in breach of contract. He has forfeited his right to any payment. He should get nothing. He worked nine months. See you later. Ninety dollars second, second option. Britain worked for nine out of 12 months. He should be paid pro-rata for nine months. $10 a month, nine months is $90. Or maybe $75 you should be paid. Why? Britain would have been entitled to pro a pay of $90, but his breach of contract forced Turner to hire replacement at greater cost. Turner's loss from the affair totals $15. So this should be deducted from Britain's pay. In other words, um, Turner had to pay the worker, the new worker, $45 for three months. Uh, his whole budget was $120 minus $45 is $75, so maybe he should just pay him $75 instead of the 90. Three options. Zero, nothing. The full 90 or something but taking consideration the loss that he had due to this guy quitting in the middle of the job. What does Jewish law say about this? I'm gonna give you the very short and sweet version of this. Jewish law, because of the sensitivity toward human freedom, Jewish law says you can quit whenever you want, under zero penalty. You can quit in the middle of a contract. You contracted for 12 months, you only work nine, you can quit. What about the compensation? You gotta get paid, because if we didn't pay the worker, we would be kind of coercing labor. Are you with me on this? If you told a worker that, sure, you can quit, but you'll get zero, guess what you've done? You're forcing labor. There is a very high sensitivity in Judaism against forced labor. Therefore, Jewish law says that by and large, in most cases, the employee can quit at any time and demand full payment. I mean, not full, full payment, but full payment for the time they worked. If you worked nine months out of 12 at the original rate of $10 per month, that's what he gets paid. I, the other guys, the the Turner, the employer is on the hook for more money because this guy quit. Them's the breaks. I don't know. It is what it is. But we don't we don't take it out of the employee's pocket. Why? Because we give the upper hand always to the worker, with a few exceptions. Let's look at this inside. I'm going to show you, this to you inside, and then we're gonna we're getting ready to close out the class. So stay with me for a li- for just a little bit. Um, hold on, let me fast forward to these texts. The right to quit. The Talmud says, A worker has the right to withdraw from their employment even in the middle of the day, middle of the working day. This right emerges from the verse. Oh, we've encountered this once or twice or three times today. The children of Israel belong to me as servants, whereby God is stating they are my servants, not servants of other servants. So, how's that manifest? How's that reflected in Jewish law? You can quit in the middle of the day, hang up your hard hat, walk off the job, no obligation. No, you cannot be forced to work. It is antithetical to the Jewish spirit to force someone to work. It's not kosher. What about payment? I mentioned this, but let's read it inside. This is from the Tour, one of the codes of Jewish law. An employee has the right to quit their job, even in the middle of the day. We already read that. But what about payment? And they are given the upper hand when calculating the pay they are entitled to receive. What does that mean, upper hand? It means you don't deduct from their salary what the guy had to come up, the extra cost that he had because he has to pay someone else more. The quitting employee is entitled to payment for the value of work accomplished before quitting. This remains true even if the market rate for such work has since risen, leaving the employer unable to hire another worker to complete the job with the remainder of the funds. For example, I'm not going to read the example. The bottom line is um, we give the worker the full amount that they worked. We don't pull out of their pocket the extra money that now the guy has to pay someone else because the market rate for workers has risen and now he has to pay more gesund, be well pay more you got to pay an example of uh, the the. US case he's got to pay 15 a month not my problem I worked for nine months ten dollars a month give me ninety dollars. I the budget is thrown off and you and and and, and the worker messed it up he has only has the upper hand. upper hand means that's it. <coughs> upper hand means you don't pull anything out of his pocket. Does that make sense? Yes. Thumbs up if if you're just understanding the the concept. Okay. So again, Judaism's fierce need to make sure that no one is ever forced into labor means that they can, number one, quit whenever, and number two, even when they quit, they're not penalized financially. Even if the guy has to hire somebody else at a greater rate, that's not my business. I worked for you. Give me the money that I earned. There's two exceptions. There's two exceptions. Hold on one second. There's two exceptions. Exception number one is if the worker left the job, the employer so high and dry in a situation of irreversible loss. The example that's given is if uh, he was soaking flax, which apparently is a thing. If you want to work with flax, you got to soak it. And then he walked off the job with the flax in the water. The flax is in the... You want the flax to soften, but at some point you have to pull out the flax. This guy walks out all this flax in the water. The guy is gonna have a total loss of all the flax. He has to hire somebody immediately. In that case, whatever extra, because of the emergency, it's an emergency, whatever emergency rate has to be paid to new workers does come out of that guy's pocket. Why? Because you caused an emergency. In a normal situation, If the market rate changed and he has to hire new workers, we say to the guy, listen, you can keep on looking for people that will take the original rate. You can't penalize the worker. But if the worker stops in a critical junction in the work, then you you pull it out of that guy's pocket unless there was like a medical emergency and he couldn't continue, in which case, once again, you do not penalize him. I'm gonna read that inside because I know I said a lot of information there. Pretty quickly, take a look at text 15, irreversible loss. If the work was time sensitive and its neglect will cause irreversible damage, the quitting employee has the lower hand in the calculation of wages. Lower hand means that you do deduct from his wages. For example, workers hired to remove flax from the water was soaking in. That's what I was telling you. If the flax is not punctually removed from the water, it will decay or rot. If there are extenuating circumstances such as illness or the death of a family member, the employee has the right to quit while retaining. The upper hand in calculation of wages so that's the exception to the exception if there was literally an extenuating circumstance then then he still has the upper hand but absent such circumstances the employee is given the lower hand when calculating their pay because quitting prematurely may cause the employer an irreversible loss another example of that would be you know let's say you know somebody was contracted for for i don't know let's say 12 months to redo a house and they're up to the stage where The roof is off. And then the guy's like, I'm done. Hello, you cannot leave a house without a roof. I mean, I'm not in construction, but I would imagine that that might be a problem, right? Kind of like your flax and water, right? Maybe, maybe even worse. I don't know. So at that point, we would deduct it from the worker, unless the worker had a good excuse, like uh, death or illness or whatever it is. I mean, if that's the case, that's the case. Um, Death of a family member, of course. I mean, okay, yeah. So that's uh, that's how that would work. So typically, we give the worker the upper hand because we value very strongly the the notion of freedom. One more exception is in the case of not an employee, but a um, a what's um, oh, the word I'm looking for? Not um, labor, not a laborer, a uh, an independent contractor. When it comes to an independent contractor, if they quit then we penalize them. Why? Because we're not con- because an independent contractor is their own boss. We're not concerned that it touches on slavery. An independent, independent contractor is their own boss. They set their own hours. They set their own agenda. They choose their own clients. They do whatever they want. Independent contractor is different, and therefore we tell them, you want to quit? You want to mess up? Then, then if he has to hire somebody else, then it's going to come out of your pocket. They get, they get the penalty. It's Torah law is skewed for the one that is touching on the notion of slavery 24 seven are you with me on that on the regular employee that that their time is owned by the employer and the work is dictated by the employer in those cases it's like it's it's a soft sort of form of slavery therefore jewish law is very sensitive to give them the upper hand to give them the benefit to give them the ability to quit at any time and to quit with impunity, financial impunity. Otherwise, it would be slavery. It would be akin to slavery. And thus, that is how Jewish law reflects the value. So, in summation. In summation. I want you to make sure that I'm ready for summation. I am ready for, for summation. Perfect. We're at the end. In summation. Here are my closing arguments. What we've discussed today are Jewish values. Jewish values that since the beginning of Judaism, even before Torah was given, When Moses stood up to Pharaoh, what did he say? Let my people go so that they may serve me, 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 meaning God. The freedom, freedom means the freedom to not be tethered to something lower, but to rise higher. That's what freedom is. Judaism is fiercely obsessed with freedom. We have so much more to do than just run around in menial service of others. That is why Judaism will never force labor. Not for the debtor who can't pay, and not for the contracted employee who wishes to quit. Labor will never be forced. Yes, they may be obligated to take care of business. Not a good thing to quit and leave the other one high and dry. It's not good to not repay your loans. Right? Boom, 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 finger wags. But the law will never mandate that someone work against their will. So no debt labor, no debtors' prisons, no forced contracts, no penalties for quitting under most circumstances. Jewish law is very worker-friendly because Jewish law and Judaism is very human freedom-friendly. And let this be the lesson for us as we prepare in a few days for the holiday of Shavuot. To be human is to not be so stuck in the mundane, is to touch the divine. Torah gives us the tools, the space, and the awareness to do so. This Shavuot, on the 3,334th anniversary of that moment at Sinai, where God gave us the tools to freedom, let us truly appreciate the gift that we have the gift of higher connection, the gift of not being stuck to the ground like a tree or stuck in lateral space like an animal, but possessing the gift of flight, as it were, that we have to touch the divine, to be of higher service, and to transform this world into a better place. Thank you for joining me tonight for lesson number five. Sorry, (laughs) lesson number four of Beyond Right. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope that the connection between the value and the laws came through clearly. All right, I'm I'm here for a few more minutes to take some questions, comments, reflections, so please jump in. Let's keep the questions short. I'll try to keep the answers short so we can get through as many as possible. Richard, jump in.
2: Yeah, so the, the, um, the, the edict not to keep a worker's wages overnight Yes. How does that fit in
0: with all of this? Um, excellent, excellent. The Torah says that when a worker works uh, day labor, you got to pay him at after that day. You cannot withhold payment. The idea here is that having worked and not getting paid, already we're getting into unpaid labor, which is already sounding somewhat like forced labor, and it's it's touching it's touching on touching ever so slightly on the notion of slavery. Uh, I'll give it to you the next. Day. I mean, you don't have to pay everyone daily, but whatever the contract is, weekly, bi weekly, monthly, annually, whatever that is, we can't go over that time because otherwise they will have worked for nothing, at least at that freeze that moment in time. They've worked for nothing that touches on slavery. So that's something that is, uh, you want to call it trauma? It's a trigger. It's a trigger in Judaism. It's like, oh, 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 oh I can't do that. Can't do that. Can't force labor. Can't not pay wages. Can't. For someone to work against their will, you just can't can't do. Not in Judaism. All right, questions, comments, jump in, jump in. Mindy, did okay. you have some? No. I'm uh, yeah, Jules.
5: Yeah. No. Um. Is it at the very beginning when you were talking about well, well, two things when you were talking about Reuben who was living off, living extravagantly? Yes. Off of his relatives. Um you know is there any room in Judaism to go into the
0: relatives yeah know, the, the you know. Judaism would apply a lot of pressure a lot of pressure societal pressure religious pressure synagogue pressure the sisterhood pressure i'm kidding i don't know what sisterhood pressure even is but yeah there would be a lot of pressure i mean don't mess with the sisterhood that's we know that we do not mess with the sister by the way the the younger generation like what's even sister like do, I feel like it's a little bit of a lost, uh, a lost um, dynamic. Anyway, back to our story. There will be a lot of pressure on the on the relatives, on everybody involved, everyone connected to that case. But the one line that cannot be crossed is you can't actually force this guy to work. You can't, ho- you can't push him to a job. You can't f- physically. You can't like. First of all, I mean, in general, like, how can you force someone? even pragmatically how do you force someone to work but judaism would say but yeah and judaism is not a thing but nor would he be thrown into jail for that which creates yes it creates a scenario where the bad guy right has a i'm not going to call it a loophole but is if someone wants to be a russia like a, a bad dude there's a kind of uh, there's a little bit of uh, wiggle space unless there's some other provision that can be done you can't really force someone uh, to work and you can't force someone into that uh, into that slavery can other pressures and all pressures be applied sure I mean how far would they go I don't know it would be an interesting it would be an interesting topic to explore in depth how far would back in the day or whatever how far would they go would they not allow that person or the family into synagogue? Would they revoke a membership? Would they not allow the kids to school? I mean, I, to, what, to what end would be those repercussions? Because those things would be theoretically, I don't know about the kids in school, but like those things would be maybe on the table. I don't know.
5: Isn't, isn't the rich relative isn't he also complicit because he's giving him money for you know, jewelry, fantastic robes, you know, that net this, this outstanding debt that's not being addressed?
4: I,
0: I would say yes. I would say that, that he's in on it. In fact, we left something out of that case. Um, I'm going to look here in my notes. The case is even more disturbing, which is why I didn't want to mention it before. Um, the case is more disturbing in the sense, give me a second. Um, there are rumors, there were rumors, it's an old case, that Ruvein actually had assets that he gave away. Okay,
5: in order, not to pay the debt. in order
0: to not pay the debt initially wow. yeah he's, a, he's, not a, he's not a good dude um, which by the way raises the question of validity of that transaction to begin with like can the bet then reverse that and force it to go back and then force it to um, to, 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 to go back to the, to the creditors there's another element oh there were rumors again I, the question is what was real what was not but there were rumors at least allegations that the husband and wife, Ruven and his wife, were actually running a business out of the relative's home, but claiming that the business was not theirs. So they it was clearly shady. It was, yeah, super as as like suspicious and shady as it seemed thus far. I even we even omitted some details that make it even more suspect. And yet, and yet and yet and yet and yet, there's still a limit to how far we can go to recover in Judaism. We cannot cross that line into slavery. We cannot cross the line into forced uh, labor. We cannot cross the line into pris- debtors' prisons. We have to be uh, conscious of that line. What can be done? I don't know. We've got to figure out a way to twist some arms otherwise. But, yeah. All right, and good.
5: Then, uh, in the very beginning, when you were talking about uh, Betty's story, mm-hmm. for some reason, you know, what immediately popped in my mind was uh, um, the story about Ruth.
0: Or, or, right, know, she you know, chooses. Left. Right, she's given the option of going home. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's related to Shavuot. That's when we read the Book of Ruth in many in many congregations. Right. So what happens yeah, with Ruth? Actually, Ru- I thought you were going there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I should have. Apparently, it's a, it's a it's an it's a great connection. Right. Ruth. Remember Ruth. So she her husband passes away, and her father in law, her brother in law passes away. Her father in law passes away. The whole family is all the men are, are gone and it's only Naomi, the mother and, and, and the two daughters-in-law. And Naomi says, all right, I'm going back to Israel. They were in Moab and she says, I'm going back to Israel and uh, bye. Have, have, you know, have a good life. And, and, and Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. She's choosing to relinquish her freedom, essentially, to go with the Jewish people. And that's a very, that's a very compelling connection. I, I really like that connection. In other words, would we say that she is giving up her freedom According to this class on the contrary, she's asserting her freedom because in the final analysis, living higher, right, living for a higher truth is the ultimate, the ultimate form of freedom. But it's perhaps a counterintuitive uh, reading of it. Now, could one argue that Betty is doing the same thing? It's a higher form of freedom is her servitude. It's hard to, to question her value system and it's hard to you know and we we wonder as was raised uh you know extensively earlier today um we wonder like to what extent is this a free decision to what extent is she thinking with everything on a on a level playing field um but could we argue that even on a a level playing field she would have chosen maybe she found meaning in that you know I, i i um i recall a study that was done in a hospital or in multiple hospitals where they asked um, all hospital staff, how meaningful is your work? And the results that came in were shocking. There was no obvious skewing of meaning to doctors over uh, maintenance workers. In other words, as far as like, is your job meaningful? There was whatever percentage of doctors, it was pretty similar across the board with all, all hospital workers, which means that even the person sweeping the floors could view that as absolutely meaningful and, and essential to the care and to the well-being of the patients. And a doctor who's literally saving lives in surgery might be like, this is ridiculous. I, I'm, I, like, I, I don't like my job. So there's not necessarily a correlation between um, you know the level, so to speak, or the pay of the job or the so-called importance, as it were, amongst the you know typical society poll as to what's more important or less important, and the actual sense of meaning or importance. It could be that Betty feels that taking care of this family is her calling in life, and and that's why I said it at the beginning of the class it's hard to argue against that. And yet, from a from a Jewish perspective, absent of something higher, maybe she had some higher value in that as well. But absence of something higher, we would Judaism would say that's not real freedom. Anyway, I hope that makes sense. Um, who else? Want, Mom, yeah, Mom, jump in.
1: What about the obligation of a Jewish employer, employee to a non-Jewish employer? Is it?
0: I don't think that it makes any difference. I think that this, look, you know, a Jew, Jewish court or Jewish law or a, Jew, a rabbi, you know, that certainly would not be necessarily binding on someone who doesn't opt into that type of uh, adjudication. Um, that's why typically a bet is only going to see Jew and Jew, Jew on Jew cases. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but Jews with Jews. Um, I don't think that that a bet is adjudicating that. But as far as the value, I don't see a difference. I mean, if the value is the value, then that should hold true. Otherwise, but Jew, Judaism does not get involved in secular law typically.
1: My question is: Should a, is a Jew obligated to uphold higher standards of, of ethics? when he is employed by a non-jewish employer in other words so not to make a hill of oh a
0: interesting so as not to write oh, that's an interesting right. question right should you should should it right should what's allowed within the Jewish community right. be forbidden in the larger community because it doesn't look good for the jew right oh you're right. Jewish and this is how you treat your job this right. is how you treat your very interesting question that's a great question I'm not sure we'd have to look it up there might be an instance where, where where there's a higher standard outside the community than within the community. That's a very interesting um, angle. I don't know. We have to look. Whoever's listening to this, right, either live or in a recording, feel free to, to weigh in and email me or text or whatever. Reach out with uh, with a response. Uh, Mindy, yes.
4: Um, I just put two things in the chat oh. if you could. To those
0: real quick uh questions. Yeah, I should probably open up the chat at some point. Um, Okay, here we go. Um, if Ruben is living, traveling off of relatives' money, could he be forced to only keep what he needs to live modestly? The answer is yes. Yes.
4: So
0: even though he's not. Oh no, no 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 no. If it's not his assets, no. If it's not his assets, he can say he's given a gift. Well then, well one second. But if he's relatives' money. Right, that's a really good, question. that's a good question because if he's given a gift, then you could say it's his assets and once it's his assets, then he should turn them over. You're right, if his wife is wearing the jewelry, unless unless they're saying that it's only borrowed and that literally the clothing is not hers, she's wearing her sister-in-law's dress, in which case she's not obligated, I'm assuming that that's what the argument was. If they said that their relatives had given them gifts, well, a gift is yours, and now those are your assets. Turn it over. So I'm assuming the trick that they were playing was, it's not even mine. It's like I'm wearing my uh, my brother-in-law's suit, or my sister's uh, this, or my aunt's that. It's not even mine.
4: But even if it was given as a gift, couldn't the, the value be calculated as to what they would need to live modestly, food, clothing, and shelter, and then... Anything above and beyond that given back to
0: the, the creditor? Uh, I would say yes, but as far as exactly how that is calculated, that is beyond <laughs> my knowledge right now. I don't, I don't know exactly if they're staying by someone's house and not paying a mortgage. Do we factor that the money that they would have needed for a mortgage, which mortgage, the average in that community? That's yeah. way beyond my pay grade right now. That's I don't. That's a good question. I have no idea. Um, and the
4: other thing I put in the chat was. I just was coining the phrase divine servitude because I was thinking of like serving God. When you were saying not human servitude, divine freedom, I was thinking like, isn't it divine servitude because we're serving God? But is that a negation of that word that we don't want to use the word servitude?
0: (laughs) No, I I feel like it's a good term, but it's a trigger. You know, it's a trigger term that we that we rightfully have because it's been such a horrible thing so it's a trigger and so yeah higher service higher it's freedom it's basically freedom yeah good good mira i see now yeah mira jump in and i i'm looking right now at the chat and i see the question a really good question on voting but ask away if you have uh, that or something else
4: so i have that question also have a question following up on um you know the pressure you can put on people to make them pay it back, would you also be able to basically like tell the entire community like yo I gave this guy money and he didn't pay me back and now he's being like really bad about it like can you say that to prevent others from trying to lend them money or would that be lush and horror?
0: No, absolutely you can say that not only can you say that but according to most opinions, not only most opinions I think according to every opinion halakhically, you actually have an obligation to warn people to not lend this guy money and not get ripped off. In fact, it would fall under the category of not standing by the blood of your fellow, which includes uh, not being passive when someone stands to lose financially. This would be a case of that, uh, simply because this guy has a history of defrauding um, others, a history of, of essentially stealing money um, and, not, and taking money and not repaying it. So it would be an obligation now, how do you go about that do you put out a an email blast do you put his picture out there in the streets there's a sensitivity to how that's done but what i'm suggesting is not only would one be permitted to do so it, it would likely be an obligation to do so um and your other question you want to ask us so everyone can hear it it's a good question
4: sure um so i was thinking about you know people are our, our prison system today and of course the having them force labor is one of the big questions the other big question is you know should they be allowed to vote if they're in prison or should they be allowed to vote once they finish their sentence or all of that so what would be the Jewish view on that or is there even in general a Jewish view on whether or not people should participate in voting in democracy because you know when we had our times we had a king that was chosen by God
0: yeah what democracy what right who that right what what democracy excellent questions very well articulated and the short answer is I don't know that's the short answer these are really good questions so number i would start from the from the last i would start from the end so number one what is the jewish perspective on voting you're right they didn't vote moses in or aaron or saul or david or solomon they didn't vote so what is jewish law on voting i it's a very good question you know um Man, I'm trying to think if I, if I, if if that rings up, I can't recall anything solid on that. Um, As far as the specific question regarding inmates and voting or convicted felons out of prison and voting, again, an equally great question.
5: How did David become king?
0: David was anointed by Samuel per the word of God. I mean, basically. Oh, is that, is that yeah. Boom, boom. He was but straight remember, up, it's like, boom, he was, you know, Saul remember, Saul messed I up. That, I
5: remember that Saul was very jealous because yeah. he was more popular than Saul and even Jonathan.
0: And Saul lost you know, it because he didn't do the right thing. But right. yeah. I mean, in general, we, you know, we don't we don't always go through these uh these scriptures in in these classes here at Chabad because Chabad is a non profit. I'm jo- that was a joke. That was a, Books of the Prophets. That was a non But anyway, back to Mira's question. Um, sorry, it's a bad joke that I always tell because I somehow enjoy it. Um, regarding the question about voting, I, again, the voting piece of it, I don't know. I would I would be inclined to look that up and see if I can, or you can look that up, see if we can find anything on that. Um, but regarding prisoners' rights, the, the my... Um, my understanding is that it would, in Judaism, it would skew more toward rights than non-rights. In other words, it it would skew more toward the balance, balancing society, what I mean by that is equalizing those who find themselves behind bars and those that don't, uh, attempting to give as much equal rights as possible. The Rebbe, we know, we know this spiritually, that the Rebbe was a huge advocate, absolutely just tireless advocate and activist for the spirit, the, the religious rights of prisoners, right? The Rebbe created, inspired and created what's t- known today as the Aleph Institute, run out of Chabad of the Sholem Bal Harbor, Rabbi Lipsker, who runs it with affiliates around the country. Um, And the Aleph Institute works extensively both with the the military as well as the prison system. We know that the Rebbe, there was a there's this great story with the rabbi from South Africa who came to visit the Rebbe. This is right before Hanukkah. And the Rebbe asked him about getting in menorahs or Hanukkah lightings inside the prisons. And the rabbi said. You know, we'll work on it for next year. And the rabbi said, no. What about this year? And the rabbi's like, well, Hanukkah's like starting or it's finishing. I don't know, it was a middle Hanukkah. It was like, and he's in New York and South Africa. He's like, okay, you, do you have any contacts? He says, well, I happen to know the chief warden or whatever it is. He's like, okay, so call him. The guy says, okay, but it's, you know, they were meeting at night in New York, and it's like a middle of the night in South Africa. It's like 3 a.m. So he says, I can't call him now. The Rebbe says, call him now. If you call him now, you know what he's going to know? That it's very important. If you call him at 3 a.m. and say, we got these Jewish inmates, we got these Jewish people in prison, and they have a spiritual need for this holiday, and and we got to make something happen. If you call him now, it's going to be effective. He called him from the Rebbe's office. I mean, this is when a long distance phone call costs some coin. He called from the, from the office right there. He called, he got through, he woke up the guy, and the guy essentially said yes. And they rolled it out that year. They rolled out a program for the prisons, for for the uh, for Hanukkah. Uh, and there was a postscript to the story. Some other thing happened because of that phone call and that connection. Anyway, the, the bottom line is the Rebbe was a very big advocate for the dignity of individuals in prisons. Now, would that include voting? Again, I don't know the specific um, considerations about that. I'm I just I'm just not familiar with that vis-a-vis halacha and Jewish, you know, Jewish perspective. But in general, Judaism would seek to equalize as much as possible. So that's kind of a general thing, but it's really good questions. Okay. I don't want to hold you guys too much longer. It's already of time. So thank you very much for joining tonight. I, I treasure, I really treasure our conversations and our discussions together. Thank you for being, uh, all of you, for being part of it and for being active in the conversation and the learning. And can't wait to see you next week for, uh, for our next class, Lesson 5. All right, Shavuot tov. Oh, a few quick announcements. Um, this Saturday night, Shavuot, the holiday begins. We are having a learning, a special learning session. 10:30 p.m. Saturday night called Torah Talks. Four talks given by individuals from the community to the community by the people for the people. This is happening Saturday night, 10:30 p.m. Join us right here at Intown Jewish Academy, Chabad in Town, Jeff's Place, 10:30 p.m. We have an exquisite cheesecake bar and coffee and tea bar. Join us for refreshments. And midnight fuel to keep you going. So that's all. All that information is available on the website intownjewishacademy.org for more information. Um, Also, we have our barbecue annual barbecue coming up June 26th with the Solish family. Join us Sunday, June 26th, for a grand old barbecue on the Beltline. All right, that's it for tonight. That's it for the announcements. Have a wonderful evening. Yes. Is that
4: on Zoom?
0: Shavuot? No. No, because it's the oh. holiday. No, it's not on Zoom. Yeah, because of because of the Chag. That's right.
4: That's yeah. right
0: that's yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's an in person only, and also the cheesecake tastes better in person. Anyway, I'm kidding. All right, we'll see you soon. Take care. Have a good night, Tove. Great to see you guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at intownjewishacademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoy today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.